You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 20 this evening, and we are continuing our Advent series celebrating the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And tonight we come to our final week, uh, seeing as Christmas is Friday, correct? Friday? Yes. Yeah. All right. So tonight we're in our final week, um, and we will be considering the most famous passage on the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. This is the Christmas passage, right? When you think of a part of Scripture on Christmas Day, this is the one. Right? In my house, it is a tradition. We read this every Christmas morning, and we eat pancakes that I make. Right, It's a nice little thing. This is a text we read. This is the Christmas text. And, and in this text, we read of many, many things that have become dear to God's people and even astonish us when we reflect upon the birth of our Lord. In this passage, we read of the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, of the lowly birth of the Savior, the angelic announcement to the shepherds, the heavenly chorus praising God, the shepherds finding the infant Christ and telling what they had seen and heard and praising God. And all of these things are wonderful. They are amazing. But as I've said in the past when I've preached on this text, at times these things can become commonplace for us, I think. I know that if that's happened to me, then I'm sure I'm not the only sinner in the room. And this has happened to you as well, right? These things can become commonplace. We know the story. Right, And we know it well, especially if you were raised in church. And so we can kind of become blasé right, about this. Right, This is old hat. I've heard this story before. But let me encourage you to not allow that kind of spiritual apathy and coldness about the birth of our Lord to creep into your hearts. The birth of Christ is an amazing thing, and it and all of the events surrounding it have been recorded for our edification. They've been recorded under the superintendence of God the Holy Spirit to make us rejoice and to encourage us and to cause us to wonder and marvel and believe and praise the Lord God for what he's done. That's why it's recorded for us. And so we're going to walk through this very well-known passage this evening, and I'm going to attempt to guide your affections and guide your thoughts as we meditate on what the birth of our Lord and everything that happened that night means for us. So I, I beg you, try as best as you can. Try to look at this text with fresh eyes and try to listen to it with new ears. Don't, don't close yourself to what God is saying here just because you've heard it before. Right? There's always something in the Word of God to, that, that, that can wash over us in a new way. And remember this, and this was a good thing for me to think on because whenever I sat down to study for this text this past week, I thought, well, I already know this text. Or, I already know it really well. Let me remind you of this. We don't come to the preaching of God's word in order to hear something new each week. If that's what you think, then you're just looking for an information dump, and you can get that by reading a commentary or listening to a, or listening to a lecture. No, rather we come to the preaching of God's word in order to have our affections raised, to have our hearts stoked towards God, in order to have old truths set before us again and again because we're so slow to believe and we're so slow to obey. We come to the preaching of the word in order to be reminded of what God demands of us and in order to hear about God himself and in order to hear the gospel and believe it again and again and again. In a word, we come to the preaching of God's word in order to worship God and to glory in him and to honor him. 
And so my prayer is that you would be encouraged by the good news of this passage in a new way. And that you would be amazed again by God's grace. That you'd be floored at the condescension of our Savior. And that you would be moved to worship God in spirit and in truth. So now if you would, as a sign of respect for our God, if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the living God. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we come once again to the preaching of your word, and we ask that you would once again bless us. We're not worthy of your blessing, but you are pleased time and time again to instruct us by your word and spirit. And you do this because you're full of grace and mercy toward us. So we ask now that you would illumine the text for us, make it bright and clear and understandable to us. Not that it is dark or cloudy or unintelligible, but we, because of sin, are in the darkness and are unable to comprehend. So be pleased in your grace to grant us understanding of your word. Warm our hearts and raise our affections. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So Luke begins by telling us, I'm just going to read the first two verses. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, this is important. I want you to catch something. We tend to kind of maybe glaze over that or, or, or go through it too quickly. Right? Luke begins by mentioning who was in charge of what. Again, Augustus was the Roman emperor. Quirinius was the governor 
of Syria. Now, there are some historical difficulties in these two verses. You know that if you've ever studied them in depth, and I'm not going to address those difficulties today. But the point is that Luke starts the narrative in a really unique way. He's mentioning real historic figures. He's setting a historical context. This would be like me writing something and saying, when Donald Trump was president of America and Mike DeWine was governor of Ohio, right, what would I be doing? I'd be telling you the general time frame of events that I was about to record. The point is that Luke is writing a historical narrative. A historical narrative. As R.C. Sproul pointed out in his commentary, Luke does not begin with once upon a time. Right? Rather, he begins with historical time markers. This is not a myth. Right? This isn't a myth. Contrary to what you'll hear from the unbelieving and apostate, this is not some Greek or Roman mythological story. This is not a story in the fictional sense of the word. This isn't even a religious tale that's meant to make you feel some kind of emotional sentiments, right? We don't care about that. We want the truth. This is historical fact that Luke is recording for us. So brothers and sisters, before we go any further, I want you to know that the book that you hold in your hand is history. It's not just religious stories. It's not morality tales. It's not made up. It's historical fact. The things recorded in the scriptures actually happened. Right? And I just want to set that before you again because I know sometimes some of us are prone to just take them as if they are stories with a good thing for us to learn from them. No, these are histories. The Son of God really did come in the flesh. He really did enter into human history as a baby. He really did come. This is all true. Luke's recording history for us. So let it be settled in your heart. The Bible is not only the spiritual word of God, but it is also a history book. It's a history of God's revelation and dealings with men for his glory and their salvation. It's a history. But Caesar Augustus decreed that all the Roman Empire, the world, should be registered. And this was a registration for future taxation, as governments are pretty good at doing. And so the Jews were required to go back to their ancestral lands, right? the, the land that uh, their family was from. And Joseph, being a descendant of King David, as we've talked about in past weeks, his family was born, or rather his family was from Bethlehem, the city where King David was born. And so Joseph and Mary, in keeping with the edict of the emperor, go from Nazareth to Bethlehem to be registered. Now, this is really important. Right? If you know your Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah or you've ever read the Gospel of Matthew, you know why. The Messiah was foretold to be born in Bethlehem, the same city that his ancestor, King David, was from. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we read this very famous messianic prophecy that says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me, God, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. A great ruler is to be born in Bethlehem, a king over all of Israel, who is God's chosen king. But not just any king, this is an eternal king. right? One who is from of old, from ancient days, who is eternal. This is the Messiah. The Davidic king, the descendant of David who will rule over God's people, who is the eternal son of God, the eternal 
king. So the Messiah, it is prophesied, he must be born in Bethlehem. Know this, if anyone claims to be the Messiah but wasn't born in Bethlehem, then he doesn't have the goods, right? He's selling false merchandise. He doesn't meet what the scriptures foretell. So then it is absolutely necessary for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. But Joseph and Mary did not live in Bethlehem. They lived in Nazareth. That's 80 to 90 miles away from Bethlehem, depending on what route you take. So how does God get them there? A decree from an evil emperor. That's how he gets them there. A decree from a godless man who hated God, who oppressed the nation of Israel, and actually proclaimed that he himself was a god. A decree from him that would set in place the means to enforce exorbitant taxation of the people of the empire. And God uses that. Unbeknownst to the emperor, right, the emperor is not trying to, I better do this in order to fulfill prophecy so Mary and Joseph get to Bethlehem like they should. No, unbeknownst to the emperor, God uses this wicked decree to ensure that Jesus is born in the right town in accordance with what God had promised. And again, catch this, Joseph and Mary would have had no reason to go to Bethlehem. Know that, no, they would have had no reason. Mary is nine months pregnant. This journey would take days on foot or on the back of an animal, right? And, and the path was full of danger and thieves, right? This young couple would have never chose to go to Bethlehem on their own, right? Never. But God used the wicked decree of the emperor to get them there. And why? Because God will not be thwarted. God will accomplish his purposes, God said Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and God brought to pass what was spoken, and he was pleased to use the wicked decree of a wicked king in order to bring it about. So note this, Christmas, I've mentioned, is about God keeping his word. And in order, I don't know if you ever thought about this, right? Christmas is very Calvinistic. In order for God to keep his word, what must he be? Absolutely sovereign. Do you have any clue how many thousands of choices have to go down in order for one thing to happen in accord with what God has promised? How many things had to fall just in place in order for the Caesar to give out this decree to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem? Untold numbers of seeming in, seemingly insignificant things. God must be sovereign over all the affairs of men if he is going to ensure that his, ensure that his word comes to pass. Brothers and sisters, our God controls all things. He guides all events. He works all things in accord with the counsel of his will, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1. And he works all things out for his glory and the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And God even uses the actions of sinful men, unknown to them, to bring about his righteous purposes to do good for his people. So I want you to be encouraged I know that many of you are anxious with the current political climate going on in our nation. It seems as if a great enemy of God and his people is about to become our president. Or maybe some of you are anxious because of personal issues with wicked men in your own lives. But here we are reminded that God ordains all that comes to pass. And it is all according to his most wise, most free, most gracious, and most good plan for his people. Trust him. Trust him. He's always working out his plan for the world. 
And he's always working out his plan to do good for his people. And the evil, sinful actions of men cannot stop him. Instead, God has actually ordained what they do. And it's part of his good plan. Our God cannot be stopped from accomplishing his will and blessing his people. Know that in your heart and have it settled whenever you think about the birth of our Savior. But Mary and Joseph come to Bethlehem. And then we read that while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. It's kind, of, it's kind of astounding, isn't it, how simply and plainly Luke describes the most monumental event in the history of, of mankind. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. That's how, that's how Luke says it. What does that tell us? This is a regular birth. The circumstances surrounding his birth are miraculous. Mary's a virgin still. Right? This is a virgin conception, but his birth was regular. With pain, don't, don't be fooled by Christmas songs. Right? There was pain, blood, sweat, screams, tears, everything. The Son of God, while remaining truly God in every way, became truly human in every way that we are, except without sin, including a regular human birth. He was born. And that fact alone should make our jaws drop. The Son of God was born. This is the event Right? The Son of God has taken on flesh and come down to us. I don't even know how to expound on this in some ways because we cannot fathom the amount of humility and condescension. And I mean condescension in a good way that Christ came down to us because He really is above and superior to us. I, I can't, we can't fathom the amount of condescension and humility from the Son of God in becoming a human being. You can't reflect on it. You can't understand, I can't understand, we can't comprehend, we can apprehend it, that it's true, but we can't get our arms around it. We can't comprehend his humility. He left heaven. He emptied himself by taking on a human nature. He made himself low by becoming one of us. The creator took on the nature of the created. And again, he was truly human. He really was a baby. Let me try to make you uncomfortable. He wasn't pretending while his divine nature retained all of its attributes, they were not communicated to his human nature. He was truly human. The natures are not intermingled or mixed. The natures remain distinct, though they're united in the same Christ. That is to say that Jesus was not an omniscient baby lying there who could understand his parents speaking. He was a baby. He wasn't pretending to be a baby. He wasn't just a baby in outward appearance. The Son of God was truly a baby boy. A baby who would have to grow and learn, who would make mistakes, not sins, mind you, not a blasphemer. He would make mistakes. He, he would trip and fall. He would be clumsy. Right? He would spill milk on the carpet. Right, so to speak. You get what I'm saying? He would make mistakes. He was a human being. You can make mistakes and not be sinning. Does that make you uncomfortable? To think that Jesus could make mistakes, but sinless mistakes, but mistakes. It should make you uncomfortable. That's the miracle of the incarnation, that God truly became a man. This Jesus is now a baby who would have to learn and speak and, 
and, and, and learn to walk and learn to use his hands like a baby lying in his crib. He would have stared at his hand in amazement. The Son of God truly became a human being in every way. And lying there, the eternal word of God was without a word. He could not speak. The bread of life cried out in hunger in the night. The one who neither sleeps nor slumbers now lies sleeping in a manger. The prince of peace now cries out for comfort from his mother's breast. This is astounding. This is condescension that we cannot fathom. This is love for sinners that has no bounds. Let me try to illustrate this for you. Imagine for a moment that you, a human being, became an ant in order to save ants who had wronged you somehow. That would be very humble of you, that you would become an ant, that you would give up all the power and privileges of your humanity as the crown creation of God, and that done in order to save these, in comparison, insignificant little ants. Brothers and sisters, the distance between man and ants is laughable compared to the distance between God and man. It's laughable. And yet the Son of God took on flesh and became a man. He gave up his rights and became one of us in order to save us. This is infinite condescension. This is infinite humility. A humility from Christ that we cannot fully comprehend. And I don't know if we ever will. Because we don't know what it's like to be God. And to take a human nature to yourself. And we can never know what that's like. He, he came down from heaven to us. And know this. When he came down, he came all the way down. And this should move you to tears. He came all the way down. Mary gave birth to the Lord Jesus in what was essentially a stable. A place for animals to stay in the night. Now the inn referenced in verse 7 could have been a village inn, which would have been basically four walls with a fire. Or it could have been a guest room in a relative's house. That's a, the word's also used that way in Luke's gospel. It could have been a guest room in a relative's house, since Joseph would have naturally had family in Bethlehem. But either way, the text says there was no place for them. There was no place for them. Either the tiny village inn was occupied already, or someone in Joseph's family outranked the young couple. Someone more important was taking the guest room. And there's no room for Mary and Joseph. Regardless, the only place for them to go was where the animals stayed. That much is clear. And this was all there was for them, even though Mary was nine months pregnant. Nobody pitied or took mercy on this 14 or 15-year-old girl who was about to have a child. While he should have been born on a bed of velvet and silk, Surrounded by warmth and gold and jewels and praise and laughter and joy. And that still would not have been enough. The Lord Jesus Christ was born in a filthy, stinking stable surrounded by animals. Born in the dirt. Born in anonymity. Born in a stable and laid in a feeding trough. Right? Sometimes we really church up that word manger because we sing it in Christmas carols so much. It's a feeding trough. That is how the precious Son of God entered into the world. When He came down, He came all the way down. 
And notice that there was no one there to rejoice with Mary and Joseph. There's no one there with them in the text. Look at verse 7 again. Mary herself wrapped Jesus in swaddling cloths. Mary herself laid him in the feeding trough. This would have normally been done by a friend or a family member. If you notice in Luke chapter 1, if you go back and read about the birth of John the Baptist, there were many people present, many friends, many family members, but not at the birth of our Lord. No one. No one was there to rejoice when he was born. No one was there to be glad or praise God apart from Mary and Joseph. No one cared. No one was concerned. When he came down, he came all the way down. Again, how humble was he to do this for us. But consider this. Jesus was born in a stable for our sakes. A minister named R. Kent Hughes put it this way. Christ was born in a stable so we can know that we can approach him. If he had been born in a palace, we would feel as if we couldn't come to him. He was born in this lowly way so we could know that he is approachable, accessible, available. No palace gates bar the way to him. No ring of guards prevents our approach. The king of kings came humbly and his first bed was a manger so we could know that we can approach him in faith and not be rejected. In seeing the lowliness of his birth, we are told that the one who is meek and lowly has come for low lives. Like us. And by God's grace, we can come to him. As the Apostle Paul said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. What grace mercy and then Luke tells us in verse 8 in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night now a quick word about shepherds again we church them up right because of the songs we sing shepherds were considered some of the lowest of the low in society mothers didn't want their children to grow up to be shepherds right it was dirty work some of you got the reference some of you didn't it's okay Mothers didn't want their children to grow up to be shepherds. It was dirty work. It was filthy work. It didn't pay well. It wasn't considered honorable. Right? And that's ironic because so many Old Testament figures were shepherds. David, Moses, Abraham. And God himself is called a shepherd in Psalm 23. And the Messiah in, in the book of Ezekiel is said to be a shepherd over the people of God. But we read from later Jewish sources the shepherds had actually become a despised class of people. They were considered lying thieves, dishonest. Their, their testimonies actually were not admissible in court. They were low, and they were hated, and they were considered very stupid. That's also part of the reason why they weren't allowed to be in court. They were dishonest, and they were too dumb to testify. Not only that, but by virtue of their job and the unbiblical ceremonies of the Jews, they were considered unclean basically at all times. Again, shepherds were the lowlifes of Israel. But God, as he often likes to do, is about to show great mercy to the lowest. Verse 9, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. To these nobodies, 
to these nobodies, to these men who are hated by their fellow countrymen, God has decided to announce by angelic messenger the greatest announcement of all time. Take note of this. This is our God. He is pleased to come to the low and the despised. He is pleased to have good news preached to the lowest. Know for a fact that the gospel is for everyone. It's one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul tells us to pray for all men, all kinds of people, those in authority, governors, rulers, those low. We're to pray for all kinds of men because the gospel is for all kinds of people. The good news of Jesus Christ, that the Savior has come, is for everyone who will receive it. Regardless of how sinful, how poor, how dirty, how hated, how mocked, how whatever it is, regardless of all of that, the good news is for everyone, for all kinds of people. As Paul says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If you think you're too bad or too low or too full of sin for the gospel to be for you, think again. The gospel came to the shepherds. <laughs> and that tells you that God is gracious towards sinners. So listen and rejoice. But here Luke tells us that the glory of God, that is the Shekinah glory, the bright glory that once filled the temple in the Old Testament, shone around these shepherds. And an angel appears to them. There's an explosion of light. And the dark countryside where they tended sheep is now bright as the heavenly courts of God. The refulgent splendor of the God of the universe is shining all around them and expelling the darkness of the world. And this is fitting for what is about to be announced because the light of the world has been born. Literally, the angel says that he brings them gospel. He brings them good news. He brings them the best news that they could hear and it's good news that is intended to make people what? Rejoice. Good news of great joy. Know this, please. This is not a message that is to be received with cold hearts. For those of us who are in the reform camp, it's not just intellectual information that is meant to stimulate your mind. God forbid if that's what we think the gospel is. It's not mere facts that are meant to be mentally assented to. It's much more than that. It's good news that is meant to shake you to your foundation and leave you weeping tears of joy at the grace and mercy of God. But what is this good news? What is this earth-shaking news? Verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What good news this is for sinners. What joy, what gladness there ought to be in our hearts when we read these words. Unto us is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Praise God. And here in this short angelic announcement, by the way, angels don't, they're not long-winded, right? Like I am. They're, they're, they're to the point, they tell you what's up. But this short announcement by the angel is the person and work of Christ. It's a summarization of Christ and all that he would do. First, the angel says that he is the Savior. That is the one who will deliver us from our enemies. The one who has come to save 
Jesus, whose name means God saves, who has come to save his people from their sins. The rescuer has been born. That's also what it means to be a savior, is to be a rescuer. The one divinely appointed by God to deliver and rescue his people from the power and penalty of their sin. Do you see how the good news this is? A deliverer has come to set you free, to save you, to save you from God because you're a sinner. The Savior has been born. The Savior who will grow up and offer himself as the sacrifice for sinners on a cross in order that we might be forgiven of our sins and be reconciled to the God that we have offended. The Savior who will save us from the wrath of Almighty God has been born. The Savior has come. The one who will work redemption in his life, death, and resurrection for all the elect of God has been born. And he is Christ. That's the second thing. He is Christ. That is the Christ, the anointed one of God, the Davidic king, the great prophet, the great high priest, the chosen one has come to us. The one who will offer up himself as a sacrifice to, to God on our behalf. The one who will protect us and conquer all our enemies as our great king. The one who as prophet will guide us into God's truth. The Christ has come. And the king has come. And with the king comes the kingdom. That will take over the world. God's chosen has come in the fullness of time. Born under woman, born of a woman, born under the law in order to be for us all that we need. The Christ has been born. And thirdly, the angel says, he is the Lord. And this word in the Greek, in this context of angelic announcement, is the Greek equivalent of the name of Almighty God. This is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Yahweh, God's name, the sovereign ruler, the creator. God Almighty, as astonishing as it may sound, this baby is God himself come in the flesh. The shepherds might have not realized that that's what the angel was getting at, but the angel knew that's what he was saying. The one to whom all glory is due. The one to whom the obedience of the nations is to be rendered. The one who upholds the world by the word of his power. The one who is the exact imprint of the nature of God. The one who is the brightness of the glory of God. God himself has come into the world and taken on a human nature and has been born in the city of David. God has visited his people. As Zechariah said, he's come to redeem them. Brothers and sisters, this is good news of great joy that should stir up your affections toward God. The one we need. The one who is all we need. Our Savior, the Christ, God himself, has come to us in order to rescue and redeem us. And that's really the best part of all that this angel said. Check this. For unto you is born this day. Oh, what good is it for us if he's born, but he's not born for us? What good, good is it if he came into the world, but it wasn't for us? But the angel says, this son is born for you. That's what the angel said to the shepherd, and that's what God is saying to you. He is born for you. To save you. 
to give you peace, to give you joy, to give you salvation, to give you everlasting life. He didn't come for himself. Why would he have come if it was for himself? As Isaiah said, unto us a son is given. God gave his son for our sakes. And if the son is given, what does that mean? He is a gift. A gift for sinners? Are you kidding me? I'm not feigning amazement. I really mean this. That God would give a gift to sinners is the most amazing thing you've ever heard. What have you merited from him? Nothing. Nothing. And he gives his son for you and for me. He came for us, though we deserve nothing but damnation because of our sins. Unto us, a son is born. Unto us, a son is given. Can you say that for yourself? You know Christianity is a first-person pronoun religion. Everyone who is a believer must say, Jesus came for me. Jesus died for me. Jesus loves me. Jesus saves me. Me, you can say that. If you believe on Jesus Christ, if you trust that he was born unto you, that he was born into the world to save you from your sins, then you can say, by faith, Jesus came for me. He is mine. I am his. He saved me. Claim him as your own. Believe upon him and claim his, him as your own. For unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Back to the text. The angel then tells us of an unusual sign that the shepherds are to look for. In verse 12, the angel says, and this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. It's assumed that these shepherds are going to want to go see this baby. Right? They're believers. And when they find the child lying in a manger, they're going to know they found the one the angel's talking about. Why? Because there may be many newborn children in Bethlehem that night, but only one is going to be in a manger. And who would have ever guessed that this is where they would find the Savior, who is Christ the Lord? But it fits with what he came to do. He came to humbly serve and save sinners, so it's fitting that he would be born in such a humble estate so the shepherds could know they could go to him. But after this announcement of a sign, Luke tells us that suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Immediately after the announcement of the birth of Christ, the sky explodes as a multitude of angels appear in brightness and burst forth in praise. Some scholars argue that millions of angels, possibly a hundred million angels, appeared instantaneously and began to sing and shout to God for joy. Heaven cannot contain its joy. Just as we can't, whenever someone that we love tells us, I'm having a child. And what do we do? Squeal, jump, hug, amen, praise God. How much more for the Son of God? Heaven cannot contain itself. 
The fulfilling of all things is at hand. The king has come. The savior of the world has come. God's plan is coming to pass. God's people are going to be redeemed. Long live the newborn king. Here he is. As we sing in the doxology, praise him above ye heavenly host. And that's exactly what's going on right now. The angels are shouting God's praise. And they're praising God for what he is going to accomplish in Christ. But what specifically do they say God is accomplishing? In a word, peace. Peace. With the sending of his son, God is accomplishing peace. What kind of peace? Well, peace with God. The peace that sinners need. Eternal peace. What is peace, though? It's a reconciliation between two former enemies. It's reconciliation. Making friendship between two groups who were hostile with one another. With the coming of Christ, sin will finally and fully be dealt with once and for all. Peace will be brokered between God and man with the birth of the God-man. One who can stand in between both parties and lay one hand on God and lay one hand on man and in doing so, bring them together by his cross. Now that Shiloh has come, now that the peace bringer has been born, sinners who trust in him will finally have an accomplished, purchased, and completed peace with God. Through the Lord Jesus, the hostility that once existed between God and man will be done away with, and man will be reconciled to God. And this peace is for who? For those with whom God is pleased. Literally, the original reads... People of good pleasure. That is God's good pleasure. Men of God's good pleasure. That Christ was on this earth as the peacemaker was owing to God's good will. God's good pleasure. Not anything on the part of man. But rather because God is gracious and kind. Because God has chosen a people for redemption by grace alone. That's why Christ came into the world. Because of God's good pleasure. This peace accomplished by Christ is for those on whom God has graciously decided to have mercy. It's for God's people, His elect, chosen from eternity past to be saved and have peace through the Messiah. These one on, on, on whom God's pleasure rests are those whom, whom the Father gave to the Son in the covenant of redemption. It was from God's good will to choose and save a people for Himself that Christ has come into the world. The peace that is given, the point is this, it's all of grace. The angels understood that, and we should too. It's because God has decided to have mercy. Our peace with God is all of grace. It is all of the good pleasure of God. It is all because he's kind to sinners. But after the angelic announcement and shout of praise to God, the shepherds leave, or rather the angels leave, I'm sorry. They go back to heaven, and the shepherds then take off to go to Bethlehem and see the child. And Luke tells us that they found Mary and Joseph and the baby, just as the angel said they would, with Christ lying in a manger. Um, again, I'm sure it wasn't that difficult. He's, he'd be in a manger, so they'd have to look wherever mangers would be found. And I'm sure that he was the only one laying in a manger. But they found him. And when they find the Holy Family, Luke says, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. They tell. They proclaim the message that the angel had given. They, they tell what they had been told. 
Namely, that this baby, in case Mary and Joseph were not aware, is the Savior who is Christ the Lord. And I'm sure a great conversation ensued from there that I would love to know about someday. I imagine that Mary and Joseph told them what the angel Gabriel had told them. And a great bunch of praising God and exchanging stories happened that moment. But get this. The shepherds didn't just tell Mary and Joseph what they had been told from the angel concerning the baby. They told other people as well. Look at verse 18. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. All who heard it. What does that mean? It means that the shepherds told many other people in Bethlehem that night. Now, I don't know if they went door knocking throughout the town like good Baptists, or if they stood on a corner and cried out like a herald, telling that Christ, the Savior, the Lord, had been born that very night. But we know that they told people. They told people what happened. They didn't, have, they didn't hold it in. They had to tell someone. And notice, the angel didn't even tell them to tell anyone, did he? They felt compelled to do it. They felt compelled to proclaim this gospel to everyone who would hear them. And these shepherds effectively become the first New Testament evangelists on record. This is amazing. And they do it because they can't help it. Know this. The Christmas story is not one to be held in. It is one to be heralded and proclaimed far and wide to every ear who will listen. And the story is not just that a baby has been born, but that the Savior has come into the world to save sinners. That the Christ, the King, has come and His reign has begun. And that the Lord has visited His people with salvation. Brothers and sisters, this message is worth telling. The shepherds understood that. I hope you understand that as well. God help us if we don't. This good news is too good to keep for yourself. Christ is too glorious not to proclaim. What God has done in him is too grand to not tell to others. As cliche as this may sound, and I know as it's coming out of my mouth, it sounds cliche. If you want to give a gift this year, tell someone of Christ. It is the grandest thing that you can possibly give someone. Laugh if you will at that because I know it sounds super Baptisty, but I mean it. Where would you be had someone not told had, had someone not told you of Christ? Give that gift. And we see one other thing from the shepherds that's worthy of our attention and imitation, verse 20. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. Simply put, they worshipped. They worshipped God for what they had seen and heard. They had heard the news of the birth of the, of the Savior. They had believed what they heard. They had then went out and seen Him, and now they rejoice and praise God in joy. Joyful, joyful praise. And that's the natural response to beholding the Son of God. That's what naturally happens after hearing and believing this good news. Joyful worship. As we come to a close, brothers and sisters, the same has happened for us. We have heard the good news that the child has been born unto us. That the Savior who is Christ the Lord has been born unto us. That is, he has been born for us. We have believed the message. With the eye of faith, we have beheld Jesus Christ who has come into the world to save sinners. And so we too rejoice 
and the birth of the newborn king. And we rejoice because we know what the birth of Christ means for us. It means salvation. So worship God. Give praise to his holy name for he has been kind. He has sent our redeemer. We are the people of his good pleasure. We are the recipients of peace with him. So be glad and worship God with all your might. And say in your heart, the king has come. Long live the king. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you for what you have done for us through Jesus Christ our Lord. You are amazing. Son of God, we, we stand jaw-dropped and baffled at your humility and condescension that you would become one of us in order to save us sinners who do nothing but sin and deserve your wrath. Father, you've given us your Son as a gift. Unto us, the Son of God was born that we might know you and be reconciled to you and spend eternity with you, praising you. Help us to see that, Lord. Help us to treasure these things in our heart. Help us to think on them always. Grace has come to the lowest because Christ made himself low. We thank you and we worship you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen.